Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I recently spoke with Jim Endersby about his book, Imperial Nature, Joseph Hooker and the Practices of Victorian Science. That came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2008. Now, this is a beautifully written book. It's a pleasure to sit down with, and it's going to be of interest and has been of interest um, to historians of science, of empire, of botany, of Victorian society and culture, and really to anyone who loves a good story. Endersby's story focuses on the importance of practice in shaping Victorian science. And by practice, I mean not just textual practice, but the materials, the bags and boats and leaves and stems and petals and paints and hands that made knowledge of the natural world possible and made it take the shape it did in Victorian society. This book centers on the life and career of Joseph Hooker, but it's absolutely not a biography in the strict sense of the term. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy listening in on our conversation. Hi, Jim. Hello. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Jim Endersby about his book, Imperial Nature, Joseph Hooker and the Practices of Victorian Science. That came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2008. Um, now, this is a book that, as somebody interested in the history of science and natural history, I particularly enjoyed. Um, it's a wonderful study, and it's notable because I think it's extraordinarily broadly relevant um, to many of us interested in not just history of science, um, not necessarily Victorian Britain or anything having to do with history of science, but rather more broadly, the relationship between sort of the, the knowledge that we have of documents and texts and the practices um, that practically brought, the material practices really, that brought those documents and materials into being. And so um, this was just, it's a wonderful book and thanks so much for making the time to talk with us about it today. It's a pleasure. So, Jim, can you start us off a little bit by saying a little bit about um, what brought you into the study of Victorian botany in the first place, and then possibly what brought you to this particular project? Well, yes, sure. Um, History of science for me really began with uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, A friend of mine, a very old friend from school, was Stephen Jay Gould's editor at Penguin Books in the UK. You know, he He was my my senior thesis advisor as an undergraduate. Well, lucky you. So I never—I I met him once or twice when he was speaking, but uh, this old friend of mine introduced me to his work, and uh, I was hooked from page one, fascinated with Darwin and evolution. I'd never really thought that there was such a topic as history of science before I read Gould. Um, and so a, a year or two after that, uh, I decided for career reasons I would go back to university. I had been an art student before then, a graphic designer, and uh, went back to university while I was living in Australia and uh, studied history and philosophy of science at the University of New South Wales. And one of the things that really attracted me was a lovely man called David Oldroyd, who's taught the Darwinian Revolution course there. He'd written a book, uh, Darwinian Impacts, which I'd already read before I went to university, model student told us. And um, I particularly wanted to do David's course, which was a complete thrill when I got the chance. Um, So that was really uh, how I got interested in... um, in Victorian science, in Darwin in particular, initially I thought I might work on Darwin. I decided very quickly that this was a kind of heavily oversubscribed field. Started looking around for other kinds of topics. And at around this time, uh, Jim Moore and uh, Adrian Desmond's biography of Darwin came out, which I really enjoyed. Very readable, very engaging. Um, and it was there that I discovered Joseph Hooker lurking kind of in Darwin's shadow, as he always is. Um, And uh, being the kind of irritating student who actually reads the footnotes and follows them up, I noticed that this famous confessing a murder letter, which Moore and Desmond make so much of in their book, was written to Hooker, and it was written just a couple of months after he and Darwin had first made contact with each other. And I thought, uh, 
you know, being, uh, you know, entirely influenced by Jim and Adrian's reading of Darwin and of this letter at the time, I thought, well, Dar- uh, Hooker must have been the most extraordinary person uh, for Darwin to have trusted him with this biggest of all big secrets so soon after they'd met this much younger man, still unknown, virtually. So what was so special about Hooker? And I went off to the library looking for an up-to-date biography of Hooker, discovered there wasn't one, and thought, aha, I have a PhD topic. You know? um, now, I have to say, over the many years I've been working on Hooker, I've come to know Jim Moore particularly quite well, uh, and I have ended up disagreeing with him rather about the reading of that letter. We've had many enjoyable evenings in the pub arguing about the extent to which I think it's just a joke, um, and they, they read it much too seriously. I have to say, I haven't budged Jim an inch on this one. He sticks to his guns completely, as he always does. Uh, but it's been a lot of very enjoyable evenings down the pub as a result. But that was really where I got started. Great. I remember um, as a graduate student watching the documentary that went in concert with that um, Desmond and Moore biography, and the most um, notable moment of that biography was um, one of them had this very flowing, very long hair that was blowing in the breeze that um, we got a, a huge kick out of. So, <laughs> so looking at this book, um, which is there are I think ten chapters, and including including the introduction and conclusion, the book focuses on um, a number of different identifiable practices that you're arguing were crucial for not just Hooker's practice, but for the practice of Victorian botany um, in general, as I read this. How did you decide to organize the book in this way? Um, Because it's not, as you say yourself in the book, it's not necessarily the case that um, it would be obvious uh, that some of these processes were distinguishable from each other. So what thought went into how you're structuring the book and the architecture of the narrative? Well, it, it grew out of the dissertation, and uh, I was lucky enough to go to Cambridge to do the um, uh, to do my PhD and to work with Jim Secord, who was hard at work on uh, the book that would then become Victorian Sensation, his book on the vestiges. And working with Jim was fantastic in every way, but one of the things he said to me very early on in the piece was Victorian naturalist libraries were stuffed with books, and most of them were about the prosaic day-to-day business of doing natural history. How do you press a plant? How do you stuff a spider, shoot a bird, whatever it is? Um, And historians don't read 99% of those books. We read the 1%, the origin of species, those kinds of books, the big theory books. Uh, And the practice all comes first in every sense, both in terms of how careers are shaped and then how someone like Darwin gets the kind of grist which they're going to mill into their theories. So I, I thought I would try and do something about what you actually did when you did botany. What do you actually do each day? And I had done a little botany as an undergraduate in Australia as part of my degree. So I had some sense of botanical collecting and so on. And I did my undergraduate thesis on the early history of the Sydney Botanic Gardens and got very interested in the correspondence in some of the details about uh, the kind of the complexity and difficulty of collecting plants and so on. So it gradually dawned on me this was a more complex and more interesting topic than I realised. So when it came to working on Hooker, I thought rather than try and start with Hooker's theoretical works, which are slender, I mean, there's not that many of them, they're not that, they're not that significant in his career. Most of his career is taken up with the day-to-day business of taxonomy. So I thought I'd start by thinking about how did he learn to collect plants and so on. And it occurred to me that uh, reading his correspondence with his collectors in Australia would be a good way to start in Australia and New Zealand. Because the distance involved means that obviously everything would need to be written down. Uh, you couldn't just, I, I assume most botanists actually learned their trade on field trips, chatting to older, more experienced botanists. Uh, and of course, we have no record of that. Uh, but because of the distance involved with the Australasian collectors, it would be necessary to write quite explicit instructions. And that this would be a way of getting at uh, the type of tacit knowledge of botanists. Uh, uh, and as a way of thinking about an education in science more generally at a time when science education is still very informal and very unstructured. And, of course, the little tiny bit of botany I knew was Australian, so I thought I would build on what I knew in terms of being able to identify the plants referred to in the letters and so on, know what they were talking about, things like that. So I started off doing that, and then I, uh, the, the, the thesis gradually took shape into these chapters uh, around practices, and then I expanded those in the book, um, looking more widely at the kinds of practices that seemed to me to make up the career. And as I argue in the book, I hope this has an advantage in that it doesn't prejudge um, the sort of uh, 
the relationship between theory and practice. Um, I don't want to kind of assume that uh, theory is somehow uh, kind of more important or more significant or more lasting importance or something um, than practice. I want to think of theorizing as a practice. Why do you theorize? What does it do for you as an individual, as for a career and so on? Um, so treating all the practices on a kind of equal footing um, seemed a useful way to, to approach that. Um, and I suppose uh, there are various kinds of theoretical points that interest me about that. There's the old sort of internalism, externalism divide. And a lot of people have written about how barren that debate has become and how we need to get away from it. But it seems to me that as soon as you start talking about the kind of social factors and the scientific factors, you're already creating the divide that you're trying to get away from. So to simply say, um, this is the practice, uh, you collect plants and uh, you classify them and so on. These are a number of practices. Uh, allowed me to kind of bridge the gaps between what goes on in the herbarium and what goes on in the kind of social world, uh, the, the practical business of making a living and earning enough money from your science with the kind of theoretical business of uh, how you define a species. This will treat it on equal footing within a single kind of frame of reference. That was the intention. Um, and broadly speaking, the chapters of the book follow... Um, the sequence in which Hooker mastered his practices, so it has a kind of faintly biographical structure as well. Oh, I can't help turning everything into stories when I write it down, so it just seemed to me to fall into that kind of pattern. Other patterns would have worked just as well. That was the one I ended up with. And were there any major transformations between the dissertation and the book, or is there anything that really comes to mind as particularly notable in what transformed from one stage to the other? Yeah, I, re I mean, I rewrote a lot of it and I added a couple of chapters. Um, in fact, when I reread the book now, which I did not long ago, I wish I'd rewritten the first couple of chapters more extensively than I did. But at the time, I was pretty happy with them. And um, I, I think that the, the chapters I wrote last are actually the seeing chapter about uh, visualizing and drawing plants and the covering mm -hmm. chapter. Um Scene was just because I had all this material. As I said, I was an art student originally and a graphic designer. I had all this visual material and I felt I hadn't made good enough use of it, uh, that I hadn't quite thought through what it was I wanted to say about that. So I revisited that material in a new chapter for the book. And governing uh, was partly there to take Hooker's story on beyond the period when he becomes director of Q. So the thesis had a narrower time span for practical reasons. You've only got three years to do it in the archive. I was at QR, massive, and I thought I'll constrain it from the period from when he qualifies as a doctor to when he becomes director of Q and look at the formation of his career. So the governing chapter was about extending the chronological scope a little bit, but also thinking about, uh, I realised reading that material about a later part of his career when he's actually director of Q, he'd highlight certain kinds of issues about scientific status which had become apparent to me during the thesis writing, they remain aspects of Hooker's personality and his scientific role in later years, his touchiness about the status of Q and his own status and so on. And they actually make sense of certain kinds of uh, issues, particularly the Ayrton incident, this uh, route that he gets into with the director of works, his boss at Q, um, I think makes sense in the light of the earlier career. So I felt there was, a point, uh, there was some point to revisiting issues which had been written about very well by other historians, but I thought I could perhaps present them in a new light and make sense of them in a new way. So that, that was a major change. Um, the other thing that I think changed in the book was I got very good advice from my editor at, uh, I've had a series of editors at Chicago, all of whom have been very good, and I've actually now lost track of who it was who told me this. It may have been Susan Abrams. It may have been uh, one of her successors. So I apologize if I've misremembered this. But, but someone at Chicago said to me, if you could just start each chapter with a paragraph or two explaining why this matters to people who don't care about Hooker or Victorian botany. Just give it that broader context of what it tells us about the Victorian period, about Victorian science. Uh, then we will sell a lot more books. And I love Chicago's attitude that they're in the business of selling books. They don't want you to dumb it down. They don't want you to oversimplify it. They just want you to make it as interesting and as accessible as possible to a wide audience. Um, to the extent that you feel happy doing that, they don't push you into this. They just give you good advice. So I did really try and think about why this mattered to a broader audience and try and set each chapter up to some degree in a way that 
that sets out what this tells us about the notions of gentlemanliness in Victorian Britain more generally. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. chapter on associating, which is about sociability, gentlemanliness, courtesy, that's an almost entirely new chapter for the book, which was very much inspired by that editorial guidance I got, make this interesting to Victorianists in general uh, and to historians in general. Mm-hmm. And that um, the structure of the chapters, actually, and the transition from one to the other works really, really well. I think as a reader, I always appreciate when at the end of the chapter, an author will very clearly say, here's what I've just told you that's important, and here's what I'm going to tell you next, and here's what they have to do with each other, very concisely, right at the end. And so it was, it really makes the process of transitioning for the reader much, much smoother, and it really kind of weaves it together into a coherent story. So, good advice there. Um, now Thank you. Just, you. <laughs> you just mentioned the importance of, or you mentioned um, gentle, the gentleman, gentlemanly science, and this um, winds up being um, quite a prominent theme in the book. And it also brings us into um, kind of in the introduction where you're really sketching out the themes that are going to go on to become important to the rest of the story and all of its chapters. Um, you argue here, or you, you say right um, at the beginning that... There are three major themes that are central to the life and work of um, Joseph Dalton Hooker, who's our main character here. There's um, the reception of Darwinism, the consequences of empire, and the emergence of a scientific profession. And we'll, we'll sort of look at each one of those in turn over the course of however many chapters we get to in our hour. Um, but um, this importance of gentlemanly... Um, a gentlemanly ethos and the sort of gentlemanliness becomes really important to um, identifying here not just um, sort of the way Hooker's career progresses, but also uh, what he means by and what um, we might understand um, to be philosophical botany. Right? Um, can you say a little bit about um, sort of what did Hooker mean by philosophical? Botany. I mean, this because this is such an important theme, at least from the perspective of the reader in the book. And what does that have to do? What, what does that mean? And what does that have to do with gentlemanliness, if, if at all? Right. I think that the two are very closely connected in my mind, having spent a long time thinking about them. Philosophical is obviously a word that has a, a number of meanings, and. Uh, there are two in particular that I think are interesting. One is it is obviously derived from natural philosophy. Uh, and so it represents an aspiration for botany to arise in the kind of scale of sciences from the status of natural history, a practice, a set of practices that are primarily arranged around observation and description. Um, and what characterizes natural philosophy, what distinguishes it in the 18th century and earlier is that it deals with the causes of phenomena and therefore it reaches uh, it, it deals with a degree of natural laws uh, with a degree of mathematical rigor of predictability and so on the kinds of things we're familiar with that characterize sciences like physics and astronomy which are very clearly more prestigious more important sciences in Hooker's day than natural history is which is still kind of stuck at the kind of you know stuffing birds and pressing plants and attaching names to them. Um, so one of the things philosophical means is uh, to make, to study botany in a way which is uh, a pure science, a science in its own right, its own interest, not merely for its practical benefits for medicine and trade and commerce and so on, but also to study it in a way that uh, draws out larger generalizations from the patterns of plant life that we see. So the Hooker is absolutely fascinated with the geographical distribution of plants and understanding what the relationship is between the physical features of the earth, climate, altitude, latitude, rainfall, temperature, these kinds of things, and the precise composition of the plant life of a particular um, part of the world. Um, this practical implications as well, but it also has a kind of a pure theoretical interest to it. So that's one of the things philosophical means. Another very clear meaning is that it actually relates to the notion of gentlemanliness. And it, the simplest way I can think to put this is that if you describe someone as a philosophical botanist as opposed to a professional botanist, you are judging them by the way they do botany, not by the way they earn their living. 
And that highlights one of the big tensions, I think, in Victorian science, which is that in the earlier period, up until roughly speaking 1820, the death of Sir Joseph Banks, it's very clear that the leaders of British science, the leaders of the Royal Society, are gentlemen. And part of the definition of a gentleman is that they're independently wealthy. They do not need to work for money. Uh, and you can therefore assume their truthfulness. They have nothing to gain by lying, so they will tell the truth because they don't need to make money from their science. And Banks is the epitome, the last kind of real embodiment of that ideal of the independently wealthy gentleman who pursues knowledge for its own sake. During the 19th century, gradually people have to start working for a living in science, and Hooker is a good example of that. And that is simply not respectable. <laughs> it's not clear whether it is right to be paid for pursuing the truth or not. And so I think that philosophical, amongst other things, is a way of fudging um, the, the issue around the status of the practitioner without getting into the issue of whether or not they're working at this full time and being paid to do it. I think there's a real desire on the part of people like Hooker to bracket that issue of money uh, and earning a living, that rather sordid business, away from the question of doing your science in the right way in terms of the search for laws and higher truths and broader generalizations and so on. So I think <laughs> philosophical does a lot of work. And it's noticeable how... Um, Hooker and Darwin used the word uh, to mean well-mannered. There's a lovely letter where uh, Darwin writes to Hooker that a reviewer of The Origin of Species has described uh, his books like this are remarkable for their consummate impudence. And Darwin says to Hooker, yes, mild and gentleman-like language. And he can afford to be amused by this because, of course, the reviewer has harmed his reputation much more than he's harmed Darwin's by, by being so rude. So courtesy, which is the hallmark of a gentleman as well, is very much part of the definition of philosophical. And in fact, philosophical turns out to have all these different implications in different contexts and different practices. Um, so it's the kind of glue that binds together these things. The other thing I would say about gentlemanliness is it is the question that preoccupies the Victorians. Who is a gentleman? Those old distinctions of birth, gentlemen are born, are breaking down clearly with urbanisation, increased social mobility, a whole range of phenomena we're all very familiar with about Victorian Britain. Um, but of course, most uh, would-be gentlemen in Victorian Britain do not want to go the whole hog down the democratic route and say, you know, anyone who is well-mannered, anyone who is honest and hard-working, anyone who has good Christian virtues is a gentleman. Uh, that opens the floodgates. So you've got to strike an uneasy kind of compromise between this notion of uh, nature and nurture a phrase that, you know, Galton brings to bear on this in the course of writing a book about English men of science. And for uh, arrivist professions like the men of science, a new profession whose respectability is uncertain because of the things I was just talking about, uh, being recognised as gentlemen is very important to them. But are they gentlemen born or gentlemen made? And if they're made, what makes them gentlemen and so on? So there's a whole set of anxieties and it runs through Victorian novels, it runs through kind of all aspects of Victorian life about how you know a true gentleman uh, from a fake gentleman. Uh, once you've given up on the simple criteria of birth and wealth, um, what do you put in their place? So I think that the debates around the status of science are actually part of a much broader Victorian debate about gentlemanliness. That's great. Now, you mentioned um, the importance of making a living, and of course, Hooker, from the beginning of the story, um, needs to make a living by, uh, in the course of these practices of natural history that he's embarking upon. Um, and the first chapter takes us into one context in which um, this is happening, and this is the context of travel. Um, so this chapter opens up with um, a meeting of Hooker and Darwin in the summer of 1839, which is going to set the stage for a friendship that's going to go on to be important um, throughout the book. And so before um, we get to sort of the, the context of traveling in particular and how this um, works out for Hooker, um, can you say a little bit about the context of friendship um, and how this how friendship is actually going to be central to these practices? Because the importance of friendship, and not just the friendship of Hooker and Darwin, but friendship more broadly, recurs in a really, I think, wonderful and surprising way as being central to these practices of natural history? Yes, I think, uh, again, I think friendship is very important. It's part of a, uh, 
it's part of a definition of manliness and masculinity, which I think is quite important. Friendships between men are at the center of the book. There are obviously other kinds of friendships that, that matter a great deal, but this is particularly important for the context of the, the man of science, for somebody like Hooker. Um, and friendships do... They, they do a number of things in the book uh, and in the argument. And I suppose the two most important are... The thing that first made me think about this is why do these collectors in the colonies, who are so vital to Hooker's work, they supply the vast bulk of the specimens that he classifies. He couldn't have written his books, he couldn't have made his reputation without people like Ronald Campbell Gunn in Tasmania and William Colenso in New Zealand uh, and dozens of others who I talk about in the book. Most of them work without pay. And in fact, the most diligent collectors, Gunn and Colenso, the, the two most important, um, actually spurn payment for their services, um, partly in Gunn's case because he wants to be seen as a gentleman, he wants to be seen as the social equal of uh, um, Hooker. So, of course, exchanges of money are not part of the relationships between gentlemen, and he knows that. Um, Colenso is slightly different. He, he wants to be accepted as a man of science rather than as a gentleman. And he will, being the Reverend William Colenso, he has a vocation already uh, and, and a way of earning a living uh, within the church. So uh, money is not important to him for that reason. But again, I think being accepted as a scientific rather than a social equal is part of his motivation. But without, I think, Hooker's capacity, he, met, he meets these men on his first voyage briefly for a couple of months each. They never set eyes on each other again in their lives, but they write for decades afterwards and the uh, Colenso and Gunn collect and send specimens for him, and they work very diligently uh, and really put themselves out for him. Uh, and they get no reward except, frankly, occasionally abusive letters from Booker telling them to work harder and collect their specimens and so on. Why would they put up with this? Well, I think the ties of friendship that are forged on their collecting trips together are a very important uh, part of that. And... Um, the friendship with Darwin is, is a similar kind of friendship in some regards, although um, they obviously have a lot more, they see a lot more of each other, they spend a lot more time together. And that friendship deepens into a more personal friendship. Some of the most moving letters between Darwin and Hooker, which I've actually written about in an article that's not in the book. If I ever do a second edition, I'll probably include this as a chapter. But I wrote an article for Victorian Science in 2009 called Sympathetic Science, which is about... Um, Hooker and Darwin's relationships with their children uh, and their conversations with each other about their children, about the births of their children. They were both present at the births of their children. They administered chloroform to their wives personally to, to provide pain relief. And of course, they both had the deaths of their children. Both of them lost children very early in life, and there are heartbreaking letters between them about how they felt. They also read novels on. They write about the novels that they read um, and uh, how they feel about them. So there's a whole kind of personal level to that friendship, which is absent in the long-distance friendship. So friendship does a number of things, but I think there is an ideal of masculinity embodied in uh, in being able to be a good friend. It's part of this ideal of gentlemanliness. It goes with the kind of hearty outdoor life of the botanist, the geologist, and so on, the, the holidays uh, with other men where you go walking and collecting specimens. And there's a sense in which the botany and the geology is an excuse to go off hiking with the men and leave the women and the children behind, I think. So there's a lot of interesting things going on there. Now, the, this um, chapter goes on to talk about Hooker's early travels, right? That sort of starts this whole story. So some of his early travels are in the Antarctic, and he spends four years aboard the Erebus, Erebus? Erebus. Erebus, um, excuse me, in the context of um, this project called the Magnetic Crusade. Can you talk a little bit about um, Hooker's time um, in the Antarctic and how this may have shaped um, what happens to his later career and as it um, sort of plays out in the book as well? Yes, well... Um Hooker qualifies, he, he does a medical degree at Glasgow where his father's professor of botany. He qualifies as a doctor, go, uh, joins the Navy as an assistant surgeon, and his father's influential friends pull a few strings to get him on board this great expedition which is being sent off. This is part of an international effort to map terrestrial magnetism, the fluctuations in the Earth's magnetic field. The British contribution is this voyage which costs the Admiralty £100,000, which in the 1830s is a huge amount of money. Um, and Hooker is assistant surgeon of all the Erebus, and he is uh, nominally the expedition's botanist. So thanks to his well-known father and, and father's contacts, he gets this uh, honorific title, which turns out to be rather important. It allows him to keep control of his own collections rather than them becoming the property of Robert McCormick, his 
his senior surgeon, who is nominally the expedition's naturalist uh, and could claim them. But fortunately, McCormick's not interested in plants and is happy to cede them to, to Hooker. So there's been four years on this voyage. Obviously, the, the, the ships have specially strengthened hulls uh, to withstand the pack ice. They have heating on board. They have kind of stoves and so on. Uh, but no wooden sailing ship can withstand an Antarctic winter. So as the winter closes in, they retreat north of the Antarctic Circle to refit and resupply in places like Tasmania, New Zealand, Tierra del Fuego, and so on. Um, and this is where Hooker does the bulk of his botanizing. And he's unsure during the voyage about what kind of career he's going to have afterwards, how long he's going to stay in the Navy. It's clear that natural history botany is what he really wants to do, but he does... Uh, he draws marine invertebrates and does do other kinds of natural history too to kind of broaden his horizons, give him the option of maybe taking some other kind of work if he needs to. And there's a very telling letter that he writes to his father from aboard the Erebus where he says, you know, as you know, I am not independent and, uh, you know, I can't afford uh, to be too proud. He says, if I cannot, um, if I cannot be an, a naturalist with a fortune, I must not be too vain to take honourable compensation for my trouble. And you can see there the, the point I was talking about gentlemanness before. Being a naturalist with a fortune would clearly be his first choice. He has no desire to be a professional. There is no option, unfortunately. He's not independent. He doesn't have a, a wealthy father. And so the, there are obvious similarities with, with someone like Darwin. The, the big voyage is very important to making a reputation, the collections, the description and publication of those collections when he gets back to Britain. Both men share these experiences and that's the basis of their friendship initially but Darwin travels in style gentlemanly companion to the captain of the beagle his father pays his own way he has a personal servant all the way there and of the five years of the beagle voyage Darwin spends about three and a half of them on land doing geologizing in South America and so on Hooker is subject to naval discipline he gets a very modest salary he has to uh, keep the men aboard the ship healthy and conduct you know, operations and so on. He has to take part in the magnetic survey and help with the observations and so on. He has much less freedom of action. He's lucky in that the ship is very healthy and his medical duties never become too arduous. Um, but he has a, he's, he's in a rather more humble position, much more like that of Thomas Huxley aboard the rattlesnake, in fact. Um, and like Huxley, he has to make his own way when he gets back to London. Um, and like Huxley becomes somewhat impatient with the kind of um, reliance on patronage and the old networks of Anglican patronage that dominate English natural history at the time. I have to say Hooker is always more comfortable with that older aristocratic world than Huxley is, who comes from a much more humble background. Um, so, yeah, the voyage is, is vital. And I think it also addresses a, a minor but I think kind of significant issue, which is that botany is seen as a particularly feminine science in the 19th century. A suitable occupation for women and children, and not a really manly business. So I think going off and risking life and limb, and Hooker really did risk life and limb in the Antarctic, is part of the way of establishing the kind of true manliness of his studies and of himself. So it helps with those issues around status and so on that are going to be so important to making a career. Great. Um, thank you. Now, as we move in the book from the story of the of his travels and the, the sort of early stages of his career, you move us into contexts um, where we are looking at collecting and corresponding and practices that bring us into the heart of um, these exchange networks between the context of this imperial science that you're so, um, I think, nicely um, drawing out for us. And what's happening in the practice, or what practices are shaping the communication networks that are actually making it possible for objects to become specimens and for those specimens from the colonies to actually shape what's happening um, in um, the sort of the center? I know we're sort of moving away from center periphery language, right? But I'll just, I've got scare quotes. The New Books Network listeners will uh, be aware of my, um, I frequently use these verbal scare quotes here, so I'm using them now, but the center. Um, so one of the, the, or the next series of practices that you bring us into are collecting and corresponding. Um, I won't sort of ask you specifically about collecting, rather um, I'll just point out or gesture for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book um, that there is just wonderful um, explanations here of the material practices and the materials that were central, or at least some of the materials that were central to the practice of collecting, wardian cases, vascula, paper, um, microscopes, books, 
Um, but what I'll bring us to is the next chapter on corresponding, because this allows us to talk a little bit about some of the characters who you've mentioned, but that we haven't yet had a chance um, to talk about in more depth. And one of these is Colenso. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, who Colenso was? I mean, you've, you've sort of already briefly introduced him, but in what way is he central to the story? And in particular, um, this also might uh, allow us to talk a little bit about the importance of the idea of local knowledge and Maori knowledge that becomes so central to the story. Mm. Yes, Colenso is a, a fascinating character, and at several points in the research and writing, he threatened to take over the whole book, I think. I came across, the way I started researching who Hooker's collectors were, we're looking at the acknowledgements in the books, who, who he acknowledges as uh, collectors and correspondents, and Colenso is prominently thanked, and in fact uh, is one of the dedicatees of the Flora of New Zealand, the Flora Nova Zelandiae, the middle volume of the Antarctic Botany Trilogy. So Colenso is clearly an important character. So I, I went to the archives of Q and looked up the Colenso letters. The first one I picked up uh, basically says, um, you know, Colenso writes to Hooker, you know, the bishop came to tea the other day, bringing another bishop with him. Imagine it. There's me, an excommunicated Darwinian entertaining two bishops to tea. And I read this with kind of open-mouthed astonishment. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, nobody was ever excommunicated for being a Darwinian, even in New Zealand. Um, I knew nothing about Colenso at all at this stage, so I went and looked him up in the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. Um, he was never excommunicated. His license to preach was suspended for a few years. Because he got his teenage Maori servant pregnant and his wife left him, taking their children with him, and it caused a major scandal. Uh, so quite what that has to do with Darwinism, I don't know. Experiments in sexual selection, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but it made me think about the distance and the fact that uh, Colenso was clearly the kind of person who Hooker would not have entertained at home had he been in London, given this scandal. Hooker is rather proper, remains a the public consumption, at least a conventional Anglican throughout his life. Um, and the social distance between him and some of the people in the colonies would have been quite considerable. But on the vast distances between him and New Zealand, uh, perceptions could be managed on both parts and relationships could be negotiated. And the very delicate business of negotiation emerges from these letters, built around friendship and a genuine affection for each other, um, but also built, built around a kind of barter of who has, think what things to offer. Um, Colenso has access to specimens that Hooker needs and can't get, and Colenso has a kind of scientific agenda. He wants to be, for example, a fellow of the Royal Society. Uh, he wants to be acknowledged. He wants to be allowed to name the plants himself, which Hooker never allows. But Hooker does his best to help Colenso get the things he wants in exchange for the specimens. And occasionally in the letters, the negotiations are pretty overt, and it's pretty clear what's going on. Elsewhere, the, um, the gentlemanly courtesy and the friendship kind of masks the, the, the bartering to some degree. But I think that's what's there in the background. So Colenso is a Cornishman originally, a printer by trade. Uh, he's uh, sent to New Zealand by the New Zealand Missionary Society, the, the Church Missionary Society, rather, as a printer. And his job is to translate the gospel into Maori and produce a Maori edition of the gospel. And Colenso is one of a generation of New Zealand missionaries who invent written Maori. The Maori have no written language before this. Uh, and the standardization of Maori spellings and so on is partly the work of these missionaries. Uh, Colenso, unlike a lot of the missionaries and a lot of the other um, Kakeha white New Zealanders at the time, is very sympathetic to the Maori people, regards them as much abused by the colonists and so on. Um, and he is uh, charged with printing the Maori text of the Treaty of Waitangi. This is the formal treaty between the British Empire and the uh, Maori, which cedes the sovereignty of New Zealand to England. And at the time, Colenso complained. He had to translate the text into Maori and print it. And he complained to the British at the time that there is no Maori word for sovereignty. They do not know what they're signing. You can't ask them to sign this. They think they are electing Queen Victoria as a kind of paramount chief, first among equals. The idea they're giving the country away to the Pakeha is just not thinkable in Maori. Uh, of course, he's ignored the treaty signed, and it's remained a bone of contention between Maori and, uh, and white New Zealanders ever since. Um, and uh, 
Colenso's first-hand account of the signing uh, is still regarded by Mary and Mary historians as one of the few white accounts of the signing which is uh, of historical value and interest to them. So he, you know, he's a he's a perplexing and, and complicated figure, passionate about all kinds of uh, subjects beyond uh, botany. But botany is his his driving passion. Um, and one of the things that emerges out of the negotiation is that uh, the issue of naming plants, for example, how do you define a species? Uh, Hooker has a particular take on this. Hooker is what is known in taxonomic terms as a lumper. He sees species as broadly defined categories that contain a lot of variability. Colenso is a splitter. He thinks that every tiny variation is a distinct and different species and needs its own name. And he is forever trying to establish these names and get them accepted by Hooker and, and included in Hooker's publications. And, and Hooker won't allow him to do this. He just ignores most of the names that Colenso suggests. And in fact, writes to him and says, you know, from having no herbarium, you have described as new some of the best-known ferns in the world. Well, from Hooker's perspective, which is literally standing on a table at Kew with dried ferns spread out across the floor at his feet, the world is at his feet, he can see a sequence where all the different varieties of ferns in the Southern Hemisphere uh, line up together with no sharp breaks or gaps in the sequence. The different forms merge into one another. So the view from London um, the imperial view suggests a single species. Colenso knows only the varieties in New Zealand, and they seem quite distinct. Now, Hooker is able to link them using varieties elsewhere in the world. That's of no interest to Colenso. He's partly interested in proving that New Zealand's botany is more rich and diverse than Hooker will allow. But he's also interested in, as he says, making it clear to local collectors um, where particular varieties are to be found. He points out that the Maori use uh, two different versions of the Formium tenax, the New Zealand's native flax plant, they use these two varieties for different purposes. So the New Zealanders, the Maori, will treat them as different species. They would never confuse them. That's They need to be classified differently. Hooker's not interested in Maori uses of plants. He's looking to create a grand imperial survey of the Earth's vegetation with a view to teasing out these laws of nature that I talked about before, the laws of plant distribution that explain the causal factors behind the patterns. Um, so he wants a big picture with not too much detail. Hooker want, uh, Colenso wants a small picture, a close-up, with lots of rich detail about what is going on on the ground in New Zealand. So they have very different agendas, and their perspectives, neither of them is right or wrong about how to classify. It's just from the perspective of why they're classifying, their, their position makes sense. But centre and periphery, as you said, these are complex terms and much debated, but there is no doubt that Hooker gradually accumulates the power and the authority to overrule somebody like Colenso. Uh, and it's a long process of doing that. It's important to recognise he's not born with that power. He acquires it, and he actually acquires it with the help of people like Colenso, because it's the size of the collections, it's the size of the herbarium at Kew, is one of the key factors that allows Hooker's uh, final decisions to be imposed upon the rest of the world. So th there's a rich, complex story of the creation of imperial authority and the maintenance of imperial authority through a delicate negotiation carried out primarily in letters and I think this business of bartering is quite important because they're almost all non-monetary exchanges. Hooker simply doesn't have the money to pay for specimens and people like Colenso and Gunn wouldn't accept the money if he had it because it violates their notion how to do science properly. So it's quite a rich story when you start getting into the into the correspondence. Absolutely, and even the um, the other written records, which might seem to somebody who doesn't um, who's not familiar with this history to be unproblematic or to not have a narrative of power negotiations embedded within them, like for example the ticketing on specimens, as you show us, are themselves um, evidence of um, a very powerful mode of negotiating authority for even um, how. Uh, what kind of inf how how objects were transported into specimens and how sort of metropolitan authority was um, that that was all about these power struggles um, and one of the other on, on that of course, point of course I mean, the, uh, some people who've read the book have complained to me very politely of course that uh, there's too much kind of nitty gritty detail about how you actually collect and dry and press plants and so on and it's all a bit boring and, and I should have cut to the chase quicker. The point I try to make in the book is that 
there is a kind of naive assumption until you look at the practices there's a naive assumption that natural history specimens are bits of nature you go out and you shoot some birds you press some plants you collect some spiders and then you examine them and what the correspondence reveals a great deal of correspondence is taken up with kind of your specimens are not quite as good as they should be in future could you do this this and this um and uh, you need to get clean paper and you need to press them you need to dry them properly they must be preserved in alcohol whatever it is every kind of plant has to be treated differently according to its nature um the very notion of what makes a good specimen is actually intimately bound up with the whole business of classification of what is a species and uh, there's a sense that emerges i think quite strongly from this that once the people in the colonies make specimens according to hooker's directions they are increasingly unable to mount the kind of arguments that they want to make about local knowledge and its importance precisely because uh, the the crafted artifact which is a bot- botanical specimen has been made in accordance with metropolitan instructions and metropolitan ideals in a sense uh by, by saying to Collins, look, you keep sending me duplicates, what Hooker is saying is, with my broad species concept, we're done. I've got enough specimens of this one. Stop sending me these minor varieties. They already have names. I want different species, new species. Now, of course, Colenso argues with him about some things, but he accepts Hooker's risk on the vast majority of things. And, of course, as a when he first starts writing to William Hooker, Joseph's father, he's a young and inexperienced collector, very eager to establish a scientific correspondence to get books from Europe that he can't get, to get microscopes and so on, to get some recognition for his work and, uh, and to have a friend to write to. So he has all these reasons for wanting to comply with metropolitan standards. Um, and most of the colonial collectors are in that position. So they try very hard to meet the standards being set in the metropolis, and in doing so, they are uh, often inadvertently accepting metropolitan notions of what is a species. So that apparently banal business of exactly which plant to press and how to press it and so on actually becomes a crucial part of the much more significant or much more apparently significant business of the classification of plants, the concept of a species, the broad patterns of distribution and so on. Great, thank you. And and also, this sort of brings us into um, one of the other sort of major issues that these um, arguments are being used to um, debate and to sort of settle on, right? And this is the issue of how um, how to classify plants, right? And you bring us into here the debate between, for example, the Linnaean system of classification and another system that we might call, they call, you call, a natural system of classification, right? Um, this also... This becomes a way to, to remind the reader um, late in the book of something that we actually haven't had a chance to talk about yet, but that you brought up at the beginning, the importance of modes of examining and modes of seeing and modes of observation, and also the importance of um, what becomes increasingly important to Hooker, which is the knife, um, the sort of anatomical investigation of plants. Can you speak a little bit to um, this debate over classification and the importance that it has for the larger story that you're Telling. Yes, the um, the Linnaean system um, devised in the 18th century by Carl Linnaeus, uh, he came up with a very simple, easy to use system, which becomes known as the sexual system. And the uh, uh, the basic principle is you count the reproductive parts of the plant, the male and female parts, and this gives you the order and class to which it belongs. Um, and the beauty of this is it allows somebody with very minimal education to uh, home in on the identification of plants very quickly. The Linnaean collections are bought by James Smith and brought to London and become the heart of the Linnaean Society of London, the foremost natural history society uh, in the world in the 19th century. Um, and the Linnaean system, as it were, becomes a kind of associated with Britain and becomes almost a kind of de facto British system. Very popular in Britain, and it remains popular in Britain long after it's kind of going out of fashion elsewhere, particularly in France. Now, Linnaeus himself always said, well, you know, this is an artificial system. We're taking one character of the plant and using that as a key. And there must be a natural system. God's own design for nature must be embodied in nature. And if we were clever enough and we had enough specimens and enough information, we'd be able to discern the pattern of creation itself, God's blueprint for the plant world. We will get there eventually. But in the meantime, this is a good stopgap to announce, to get collecting, to amass more plants, to begin to see that bigger picture. Um, But it becomes 
the, the project becomes kind of fossilised a little bit in Britain because of this sort of patriotic uh, association with the Linnaean collections and, and the system and, and the Linnaean society. The arrival system grows up in France, which is known as the natural system, although it actually fragments into a whole range of kind of related systems, uh, which in very simple terms tries to use all the characters to plant for classification. So it tries to uh, achieve a more natural sense of the relationships between plants. And this is the system that, that Hooker prefers, on which most of the, the philosophical botanists prefer, I think partly because it's more complicated <laughs> um, and it helps to actually keep some of the, kind of the women and the children uh, and the low status people out of botany. So it's part of this business of raising the status of botany is to sort of make it more complicated uh, to write your descriptions in Latin using lots of technical terminology and so on. Um, and to stress that classification is not the kind of thing that anybody can do. It needs to be done in a centralised institution with a vast library and collection and so on, precisely the kind of things that Hooker has, people like Colenso and Gunn don't have and so on. So it serves all kinds of functions in these debates. Um, but as I say, the problem is that each uh, taxonomist, however expert they are, however big their collections, has to exercise their own judgment as to which are the most important characters of the plant and how much similarity or difference is needed to unite two species, specimens into a species or to separate them into two separate species. So the lumpers and splitters run right through the, the, the kind of uh, classificatory world in Britain as well as in the colonies. And uh, a great deal of focus time and energy and a great deal of invective is spent on the question of trying to rein in the splitters uh, and uh, arrive at a stable um, uh, natural system based on a kind of unified broad species concept. And there are lots of reasons for that, issues of authority and so on, but one of them is that uh, Hooker is inspired by Robert Brown uh, a very important English naturalist of the early 20th, uh, 19th century, um, and a technique that Brown invents called botanical arithmetic. This sounds very simple. It simply involves the calculating of the ratio between the number of genera and the number of species in a particular place. But what it gives you is a an arithmetic value for what we would now call biodiversity. How many species are there? All naturalists, as they travel, recognize that the tropics are rich in species and the Antarctic is poor. But how rich and how poor? It's recognized that continental floras are richer than island floras. But again, how do you quantify that? And Brown has this simple technique that allows you to calculate it. And that looks to be the first step on this ascent from observation to generalization to laws of nature, which is the uh, kind of ideal of 19th century inductive science. So Hooke is very keen on botanical arithmetic, very keen to do these calculations. But of course, you can't do them if everyone classifies species in genera differently. So botanist day says there are 500 species here and botanist species there are 300. Which number do you take when you're calculating your ratios to take it? So the instability of classification is a huge block on the way to a stable natural system, which is a block on the way to not laws of nature, and therefore it's an obstacle on the way uh, to a more prestigious botany. The physicists don't all have their own versions of Newton's laws. You know, it's the mark of the mature science that there is no dispute over the basics of the science. And Hooker is very conscious of that, very keen to end these disputes and move on uh, to the kind of higher stages of philosophical botany. Um, and he never really succeeds in getting there. This remains a bone of contention right through the 19th century. Um, and Hooker actually writes to his friend George Bentham, another classifier, that, uh, you know, he, he rages about species mongers, splitters, and so on. And he says, you know, what is, uh, you know, these are obstacles on my way to the butchers and the bakers. And I, you know, what is all pretty play to the amateur botanist is death to me. It was very, if I rate about this. But it is actually the case that he has to delay marriage for many years while he goes on another long, dangerous expedition to the Himalaya because he can't afford to get married. And there, so there really is a sense in which the splitters are in his way and he can't get to the bushes and the bakers. He can't make a living with the kind of prestigious, uh, respectable, gentlemanly living that he wants to make from his science uh, until some of these basic issues have been settled. Uh, to allow him to move on to the philosophical work that is his real interest. One of the most striking phrases um, related to this that came out for me in the book is um, you talk about the incubus of synonymy, two words that typically we don't put together, which I love. Yes. 
Hooke was passionate about this is so obvious when he writes about it. You know, he writes to Bentham about the fact he's working on the classification of Indian plants, and he writes, "It is wild and exciting work. The species go smash, smash every day." You know, he just loved smashing up other people's species of them into big, broad, general species. You know. Um, and this, of course, becomes the key reason why he is one of the first men of science to publicly adopt Darwin's ideas, to come out in support of Darwin uh, almost at the minute that The Origin of Species in print Darwin, uh, Darwin has published, Hooker goes public in support. Um, and it's because uh, Darwin offers natural history laws of nature, a proper historical explanation. He offers a, a really philosophical reason for why we see the patterns of affinity that we do in the plant kingdom. These are patterns of descent, of common descent. And Hooker actually writes about the fact that he, he talks in one place about the um, all the descendants of a common ancestor being in effect one species. So it's a wonderful kind of uh, philosophical justification for lumping on a grand scale. It's no longer an idiosyncratic preference on the part of Joseph Hooker. It's a law of nature, uh, according to Darwin. So he has all kinds of reasons for wanting to embrace his friend's ideas, apart from personal loyalty and so on, that become very important to his stance over Darwinism. Right. And the, um, this actually brings us really nicely to um, sort of the conclusion of the book or the end of the book. And in doing this for listeners, we're, we're skipping over so that I don't take up hours of your time. Some wonderful chapters um, on charting, on associating, which goes into this issue of gentlemanliness, among other things that we talked about, on governing, um, which speaks to the changing nature of Q um, and the changing sort of nature of Hooker's career that goes along with this um, the transforming nature of um, the relationship between Q as a public and private space that happens over the course of this. And it brings us to um, something you just um, were talking about, which ends the book, or um, helps to end the book, which is um, not just Hooker's relationship with Darwin, but his view of Darwinism. And this is interesting because he doesn't, the story doesn't begin here with him accepting Darwin's ideas about how, for example, you see why you see relationships between different species um, on islands that shouldn't necessarily, you know, that, that the sort of the configuration of the land doesn't obviously lend one to put these things into relationships, right? Forgive my grammar here. My syntax goes out the window <laughs> sometimes when I'm really excited about something. So can you talk a little bit for us as a way of sort of bringing the story of Hooker and Darwin um, to a close about this, the change in the way Hooker understands Darwin's ideas and maybe perhaps um, the relationship between this and this other idea that Hooker's playing with of the possibility of the sunken continent being responsible for um, botanical distribution? Yes. I mean, as I said, I, I came across Hooker you know, very much in Darwin's shadow. He's, he's little more than a footnote to Darwin's story, which is why most people have heard of him. Um, and uh, it seemed to me as I started to read uh, the literature, what literature there was on Hooker, that there's a kind of an interesting divide. Some people see him as a kind of early closet Darwinist, just sort of waiting to, for Darwin to publish so that he can start using Darwin's work. And others see him as a kind of late, reluctant, kind of half-hearted convert. Um, and I was kind of baffled by that until I actually started reading the introduction to The Floor of Australia, which is where he comes out as a Darwinist. And it is uh, very ambivalent in places. So he will actually say on the same page, you know, these are uh, Darwin's work will lead us to more philosophical conceptions of these topics. Now, there's no higher term of praise in my book, 19th Century Natural History. More philosophical. Excellent. On the same page, he said, nevertheless, you know, it's not going to change the way we do botany. It's not going to change anything about how we classify or whatever. I thought, well, it's a curious scientific revolution that doesn't change anything <laughs> in terms of the actual day-to-day -day practice. And the more I read this, the more I thought about Hooker's career, it seemed to me that Historians have asked, sort of, when did Hooker become a Darwinist? It's slightly the wrong question. To make sense of Hooker, you need to ask, what use was Darwin to Hooker? What use did Hooker make of Darwin's ideas? And in very simple terms, I think there's the strong attraction of having a properly philosophical explanation for the patterns of distribution and descent, the patterns of classification uh, and uh, biogeography. That's a great attraction in terms of this wider project of raising the status of his science and his own status and his own income. The potential drawback is that Darwin says very explicitly that varieties are just incipient species. 
that the varieties of a plant are gradually diverging to become new species. And it turns out that Colenso is an ardent Darwinist and reads this and basically says, well, they're going to be species one day, so I may as well name them now. So Hooker is uh, concerned that evolution provides a justification for splitting on an unprecedented scale, which will trash his wider philosophical project of stable classifications and biogeographical mapping. So hence the the sort of tone of his essays, I think, is partly addressed to his fellow metropolitan men of science. Look, botany has come of age. We're now a properly philosophical distribution of uh, science. We've got some laws. We've got some broad generalizations. We've got a proper account of why we see these patterns in nature. To the colonial audience, who, of course, are also very important to his books, he's saying... But don't think you can then go off and do botany in a new way. Darwinian botany and pre-Darwinian botany are going to look the same. Because what Darwin has said, and he says this very explicitly in the chapter on classification in The Origin of Species, is that natural selection provides an explanation for the patterns of affinity and relationship which the natural system attempts to classify. It explains why these patterns are there. It doesn't change the patterns or the way we classify them. It just explains why we do what we do. So it provides a philosophical underpinning to an existing practice. So Hooker is simultaneously trying to impress the other metropolitan men of science with the new status of natural history, while at the same time trying to kind of hose down the colonial splitters and stop them running amok uh, with Darwin's kind of remit in their pockets uh, to go off and do more splitting. So the very complexity of Hooker's reaction to Darwin, I think, um, allows us to understand uh, the, the tone of his books. It allows us to understand something of the complexity of being a 19th century naturalist, of making a scientific career in, in this period of rapid social uh, and uh, um, economic change where the status of paid work is uncertain, there's questions of gentlemanliness and so on that we've talked about. It's against that background, against those uncertainties, that it makes sense why you would be very careful about the way you would approach uh, an important new scientific theory like Darwinism. And I hope that that opens up some sort of window into the broader question of the impact of Darwinism in Victoria and Britain. Um, but it's important to think about the men of science and the other people in Victoria and Britain to think about Darwin's audience, how they respond to Darwin, why they respond in the way they do, what they are hoping Darwin will do for them in their very many different ways, whether they are religious or political radicals, whether they're men of science trying to make careers and so on. There are all kinds of agendas here. And Darwin is interpreted and reinterpreted by different audiences to different ends. So part of the kind of idea of imperial nature is sort of to leave the Darwin story to the end because I wanted to rescue Hooker from Darwin's shadow to some extent and put him at the centre of the book. And then, of course, in the last couple of years, I have played my own small part in making Darwin's shadow deeper and blacker than ever before by doing, like, publishing an edition of The Origin of Species in 2009 and talking about Darwin and kinds of publications and so on. But as uh, Jim Secord pointed out to me, if it wasn't for Darwin, nobody would want to read our books on Hooker or the Vestiges or any other Victorian natural history and evolutionary topic. So we have a lot to be grateful to Darwin for. Uh, it just sometimes, as I say, the shadow does seem a little deep and black. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jim. And we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I want to just ask, finish up by asking you a couple of questions. First, especially because the book is so rich and there's so much of it that we didn't have a chance um, to really talk about, is there anything about the book that you want to make sure to mention for listeners, either who have or have not had the chance to read it before um, listening to us today? No, I think we covered a lot of the important things. I want to mention that it's in paperback and very yes. affordable. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I think, I hope it has things to say uh, that are of general interest. You very kindly said in your introduction that you felt it did. And I think, I, I would just hope that people who are not necessarily Victorianists and certainly people who are not particularly interested in uh, botany would nevertheless think that it might be worth a read and, and might be of interest to them. Um, inevitably, when you write a book and it's a few years old, you look back on it and you wish you'd done things differently and so on. And maybe one day it, it'll justify a second edition and I'll get to revisit certain things. Um, I think that the the kind of private lives of Hooker and Darwin, the stuff about children and so on that I was talking about earlier is one of the things I'd like to bring more fully into the book. Um, and I think there are 
aspect of the colonial relationship, which I'm still not quite satisfied with the way they worked out in the book, the precise relationship between the affective dimension of, you know, the friendship and the kind of real human warmth between these people and those wider questions of political power of centre and periphery and uh, scientific authority and so on. They seem to me still to be in a slightly uneasy relationship. Maybe they just were, and maybe there isn't, they're not resolvable, and that's just the way the Victorian Britain was. I just, it's one of the things I think I might come back to. Who knows? Okay, thank you. And that also brings us to um, my second question, which is now that this book, well, this has been out for a few years now, and in addition to thinking about um, a second edition, uh, what project right now is most inspiring you? What are you working on um, now, and what can we um, hope to read next? Well, um, I'm currently finish, trying to finish two books. Uh, the first one is um, a book about orchids, which is for a new series that Reaction Press are doing. Uh, you may have come across a series on animals yes. that they did. Yeah. Uh, they're doing a botanical series, and uh, I'm doing orchids for that. So this will be a book that uh, marries a couple of my, my great passions in life, Darwin, obviously, on the one hand, and his book on fertilization of orchids, and also the work of Raymond Chandler, this great scene in an orchid house in one of Chandler's novels where uh, um, Marlowe meets General Sternwood at the beginning of The Big Sleep. And orchids have a kind of fascinating cultural presence, symbolising basically um, sex and decadence and, you know, what's not to like. There's so many interesting kind of mythological, scientific, cultural references. So there's going to be a little book, lots of pictures, thinking about what orchids mean. Uh, and then after that, I have another book for a kind of a broader audience, um, I wrote an earlier book called The Guinea Pig's History of Biology, and um, that did reasonably well. And the editor of that book has signed me up to do uh, another book in a similar kind of vein, something that is supposed to be um, of interest to an intelligent general audience, uh, not too academic, but hopefully won't disgrace me in front of my academic colleagues. So it's going to strike that but awkward balance. Um, and that's called A Place for Everything, and it's about classification in much broader terms. So it's about the classification of the sciences themselves in the long 19th century, the creation of new sciences, the creation of new systems of nomenclature for other sciences, for chemistry, for physics, and so on. Um, and about science and empire in a kind of broader framework. So that's the that's the, the next book. And then eventually, once those are out of the way, I'm writing a book about early 20th century biology, about a cultural history of biology in Britain and America in the early 20th century, looking at things like the reception of Hugo de Vries' mutation theory is one of the particular interests I have there. But looking, again, at the way audiences react to science, how they take hold of scientific ideas and run with them in all kinds of unexpected and interesting dimension directions. And one of the things that became very apparent to me reading, doing the edition of The Origin of Species actually made me kind of get, make this crystallize in my mind. Modern biologists will tell you ad nauseam that evolution does not mean progress. Evolution is a process whereby organisms get adapted to a particular ecological niche, and if the niche changes, they go extinct. There's no onward and upward drive to evolution. It doesn't work like that. And, of course, they're right in terms of modern evolutionary biology. That's what evolutionary biology says. But in terms of what the Victorians thought Darwin meant, they're wrong. <laughs> and, uh, actually, if you look at the way that advertisers use the word evolution, it's clear that they're wrong about that, too. But the popular understanding of evolution is absolutely uh, wedded to the notion of progress. And it seems to me that it's a very important point about what does a scientific theory mean. It means what people think it means. The fact that the author or the scientific experts have a different view of it doesn't actually change it's the cultural work that a scientific theory does. So the, 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 the book after the third book, um, which is tentatively called Of Moths and Maze, it's about uh, certain kind of scientific ideas in the early 19th century, evolutionary biological ideas, how they get taken up by a popular audience, and how that changes the science, how the science itself changes in response to the way that the public perceives it. But for this, I'm going to need some leave and <laughs> some time off to go and do some archival work and really get to grips with that. So that's a few years down the track, I think. Well, well thank you so much. Um, as I've already mentioned, but I'll say again, I think it's a wonderful book, a really clearly and elegantly and kind of sparklingly written book as well. And that's always a pleasure um, to see a piece of academic prose and a substantial piece of academic prose that's so lovingly written. 
um, that's very much the product of the craft of the writer, um, very explicitly and not simply um, sort of here's some scholarship, go learn something. It's a wonderful book. I think it's of, as I've said, much wider relevance than just um, the Victorian period, than just botany, um, and um, I really enjoyed reading it. Thanks so much for talking with us about it today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.